Welcome to On the Middle East, Al Monitor's weekly podcast on major stories unfolding in the region. My name is Amran Zaman, and this week I'll be looking at rising tensions in the South Caucasus that threaten to draw in regional powers, Turkey and Iran. Their respective allies, Azerbaijan and Armenia, are locked in a bitter standoff over access to the majority Armenian enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh. Nagorno-Karabakh lies within Azerbaijan's internationally recognized borders, but the ethnic Armenian population there say they want independence. More than 100,000 civilians remain stranded there since December 12th. That's when Azerbaijan imposed a de facto blockade over the enclave as Russian peacekeepers looked on. Tehran and Baku are at lockerheads over the latter's plans to establish a land corridor to Turkey that would effectively cut off Armenia from its friendliest neighbor, Iran. Iran and Azerbaijan have held war games along their common borders to signal their displeasure. With us here to discuss these developments is Olesya Vartanyan, senior South Caucasus researcher for the International Crisis Group and co-author of a recent report laying out the dynamics at play. Welcome to our show, Olesya. It's such a pleasure to have you. All the pleasure is uh, mine. Thank you so much for inviting me. You just put out this really stark report about the latest situation in the South Caucasus, warning that renewed conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia is a real threat, a real risk. Olesya, can you please explain to our audience why the world should be paying attention to what's going on in the South Caucasus? Well, with the war in Ukraine, all the eyes are, of course, at what's happening uh, between uh, Ukraine and Russia, with all the stakes between the West and the rest of the world. Uh, But what we are trying to say, and uh, this is what we have been doing at Crisis Group, and this is certainly not only me who is doing that. We have a a number of colleagues in different parts who are working on this topic. And what we have been telling everyone is that although South Caucasus may look small, and may kind of, you know, consider uh, less kind of stakes compared to what's happening in Ukraine. But in fact, uh, these are really very important uh, events uh, that can become a turning point for a broader region and not just the South Caucasus. So what, what was happening all last year is that we have been seeing a series of escalation taking place along the front lines. Uh, both in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict zone, but uh, then also at the Armenian-Azerbaijan border. And they reached the point when, uh, if they go for the fighting next time, we may see Armenia cut in two. And this will certainly put Armenia in such a situation when uh, Yerevan will have to go for uh, for some some deals that are certainly may work for a short time, but in a longer perspective, do not are not going to guarantee stability, uh, and not just again for the South Caucasus, but for a broader region. You just spoke about Armenia being cut. Can you kindly explain to our audience what you mean by that? and how that can be part of a broader conflagration, as you pointed out. 
In September 2022, there was an escalation at the Armenian-Azerbaijan border, and we saw the Azerbaijani troops establishing their positions deep inside Armenia. And some of their positions, they are located next to the town called Jermuk. It's, it's one of the main Armenian tourist destinations. And uh, if you, I visited that area, and if you have a look at uh, how they're positioned now, the Azerbaijani troops, it becomes clear that it will not take them long. And especially say that just two days to march through an, um, a gorge uh, that uh, basically will lead them to to Nahichevan. And by doing so, they will effectively cut Armenia in two. So there will be like a mainland Armenia with Yerevan, with Gyumri, with uh, Dilijan, with uh, all these kind of places. Uh, and also there will be the southern part, which is Sunik, or some also call it Zangizur. And, and that southern part is a um, mountainous region, very beautiful one, um, that is stuck or sandwiched between Azerbaijan and its uh, exclave of Nahichevan, but also uh, borders with, with Iran. And so what could effectively happen, as you just described, is that um, Armenia would be cut off from that border with Iran, and Azerbaijan would insert itself there, and of course, the broader fear, as we both know, having just been in Armenia at the same time and traveled in some of the same places, is that the local population especially is concerned about an Armenian, an, uh, sorry, an Azerbaijani occupation. And of course, there are others who are very concerned about that in particular, and Iran chiefly. Can you dwell a bit about Iran's position in all of this and how as a result of what's happening in Armenia, we're now seeing tensions escalate between Iran and Azerbaijan. Before going for some kind of broader political or geopolitical and you know uh, issues there, I would just uh, want to bring this kind of ground reality there, you know, ground truth. So what will happen if, for example, Azerbaijani troops control uh, this road and cut the country in two? For, uh, first of all, it will certainly lead uh, to some humanitarian consequences. Around 200,000 Armenians live close to these border areas. So it will definitely lead to the outflow of thousands of people in all different uh, locations. You know, some of them will go to Iran, some of them will try to still kind of cross and go deeper into Armenia or some other areas. Um, when I was talking about like what it may look like uh, with some experts, both here in the region in the South Caucasus, but also those who work for the foreign governments, they were telling me that imagine you will have to get the pass to cross uh, from one part of Armenia to another. The way it happens, for example, or, or you will have to get an escort to, to get from one part of Armenia to another. Even more, uh, they were kind of mentioning the fact that um, that will effectively close the road to Nagorno-Karabakh. So there will be more controls, something that Azerbaijan has been demanding as one of these kind of reasons why they're continuing, they continue blocking Nagorno-Karabakh right now is kind of control of this Lachin road, yeah? So there will be actually no need for that. And of course, it will affect countries like Iran because uh, 
um, Iranian trucks that now uh, go through Armenia, they will have to find another way or they will again have to find some special arrangements. It's all becoming, it's already very difficult following the 2020 war because of these kind of changes in the borders, controls of different areas. But now it will become, I would say, almost impossible. So effectively, Iran will lose with, uh, um, with territory, with access to the territory that they, um, their Iranian, uh, Iranians often say is uh, alternative road or alternative exit to the world, uh, to Russia, to the Black Sea, alternative to what they have through some other places like Azerbaijan or Turkey. Right. And so as a result of this, of course, the concern is mounting in Tehran and you're now seeing uh, quite a bit of angry rhetoric between the two sides and not just rhetoric. They've been carrying out these war games along that very sensitive border. And in Azerbaijan's case, most recently in December, you saw Turkey um, taking part in those war games. We all know that Turkey was a critical partner for Azerbaijan in the 2020 war. Uh, some would say without its assistance, without those drones and advisors, there was no question of Azerbaijan actually wresting back those territories. Now, at the same time, you see Turkey uh, reaching out to Armenia since the beginning of last year and holding these normalization talks. The hope in Armenia was certainly that those talks would, well, obviously be successful and result in an establishment of diplomatic relations, reopening of the border sealed since 93, but also, you know, serve uh, as a deterrent so that Azerbaijan would not do what it's been doing, but it is. So what do you have to say about those talks and their impact in this very combustible mix? During the 2020 war, when I was in Armenia, uh, it was really very shocking to me that there were the Armenian officials in the leadership who were very much surprised. Uh, with the Turkish involvement. So they did not really, at least kind of not all of them, expect Turkey to be uh, involved to that point when we saw mercenaries, weaponry, coordination, advisors, people present apparently on the ground as well. Um, and I think it was a uh, lessons learned for Yerevan. So what uh, they started thinking, and I remember it was so shocking to me. It was just kind of days after the ceasefire. And the first thing that I started hearing from Armenian officials um, is we need to reach out to Turkey. We need to do something. And uh, in a way that to me signaled that they will be looking for contacts in Ankara. And, and with this done because they got, I would say, so much scared of um, the scale of the Turkish involvement. And especially if there is another conflict, another war, what Turkey could do. Armenia shares a huge border with Turkey. Um, and then, of course, everyone saw that Russia was not ready or didn't really want <laughs> to interfere, you know, to, to protect Armenia. So I would say that when uh, on the Armenian side, the kind of the, the main reason why they started with process, people call it normalization process. It's not really a normalization process. It's just like, you know, some of the contacts that they are having. So why Yerevan went for this context is, first of all, to establish some contacts 
to mitigate some potential um, attacks or some kind of a grand big involvement of Turkey in case of a new war. Um, again, during the 2020 war, it was so shocking. People were telling, we don't even have a contacts in Turkey. We don't know who to call. And it's like, uh, how does it come? You know, you are the government. How does it come that you don't even have <laughs> so, uh, the contacts with your neighbor? They, they didn't, didn't think about this. They didn't really kind of plan it properly. Maybe there were the people who were thinking, but it definitely did not go uh, as part of the strategy. There's also other stuff happening that directly affects uh, all of this outside Armenia. And I'm referring to what's happening in Washington with Turkey trying to get, you know, these F-16s and the Congress saying, no, you can't. And one of those Congress people saying that is Bob Menendez, who, uh, of course, has a very strong uh, Armenian, ethnic Armenian constituency. Uh, and at the same time, Turkey always likes to point out has an Armenian wife. And so, you know, just as Turkey is trying to, not that that matters, but, you know, Turkish officials like to mention that. Um, and so just as Turkey is having these so-called normalization talks, in Washington, you see the um, diaspora Armenians apparently being um, part of an effort to block you know, Turkey uh, sales to Turkey, military sales. So it, it, it really makes things very complicated. But you mentioned Russia, and of course, Russia, it was the big player, um, you know, historically in that region. Uh, but now we see Russian influence receding, or at least Russia is very di distracted by what's happening in Ukraine. But then, you know, even before Ukraine, I think Russia seemed to be, I mean, first of all, during the 2020 war, it really in the early days was sitting on its hands. So what was that all about? Is Russia now becoming more pro-Azerbaijani? What's going on and why? <laughs> Well, uh, I think uh, Russia's uh, key interest for the very, very moment uh, is to focus on uh, Ukraine. So they don't want to have any kind of uh, new escalation, any kind of new war uh, that can distract either its diplomatic resources, not to mention military resources that they desperately need in Ukraine. And then with the strategy that they have, uh, the attitude that they have, uh, not just to Armenia, Azerbaijan, Nagorno-Karabakh story, but to Georgia, for example, as well. Um, so with this kind of their key interest, so they would definitely prefer not to have any kind of escalations. But if they happen, then they are not in a position to, um, you know, respond, especially militarily. Uh, so if, for example, Azerbaijan is doing certain things, uh, they would rather kind of, you know, cover it or find a way to negotiate, but not really to go against it. Um, there is another um, kind of long-standing interest uh, of Russia uh, in, in this whole story. And it also, it of course has to do with the fact that Azerbaijan is uh, the richest country, the biggest country in the region. And uh, um, right now also a close ally of Turkey that plays a special role in the Ukraine story. Um, so for Russia, when they look at the South Caucasus, so they understand that Azerbaijan is definitely something where 
it's kind of you know a, a young lady that still <laughs> wants to get married so yeah while Armenia is already part of all the kind of alliances and unions and so there kind of you have to find a way to um, still cooperate and work with Azerbaijan and uh, with this kind of another rationale where uh, some in Armenia definitely they say that uh, Russia is working uh, for Azerbaijan and there is the third uh, thing there as well. I think with 2008 war with Georgia it was a, a very important lesson uh, for the Russian officials and when I speak to them um, I understand that uh, they definitely don't want to reach the situation the way it was with Georgia, when they have to go for some really very kind of radical decisions, and they effectively cut uh, any perspective for cooperation in future. So what happened with in 2008 is it was not just the war and Russian invasion of Georgia, but Russia recognized Abkhazia and South Ossetia, two de facto entities. And because of that, Georgia and Russia don't have diplomatic relationships. And uh, Georgia has absolutely no interest <laughs> of kind of uh, saying no to some of this proposal and offers coming from the European Union and the US in that sense. So they would uh, kind of, it's strange to see what the Georgian government is currently doing. I would say kind of they are trying to sit on, on two chairs at the same time, but still even with this uh, government that some call pro-Russian, uh, they are still declaring their interest in closer integration with the European Union, being part and candidate for the NATO membership. And Russia definitely doesn't want to have Azerbaijan next for this. So they would have to, they would prefer to engage and find with kind of common ground uh, and sometimes maybe even leaning towards Baku more that they would want, uh, but certainly not to have another enemy um, next to their border. Well, also, as you pointed out to me in an earlier conversation, uh, President Putin and President Aliyev, uh, you know, have quite a bit in common, don't they? Um, they can sort of converse using the same language, not just literally Russian, but also <laughs> a similar mindset. And of course, on the other hand, you have Pashinyan, who came to power pledging democracy. Uh, and the Russians don't really like those color revolutions, do they? So some would argue that the reason Russia sat on its hands early on in the 2020 war was just to give uh, Nicole a little lesson, whether that's true or not. You know, you hear all these conspiracies. But what we do know for sure is that ahead of the Ukraine war, Mr. Aliyev traveled to Moscow and met with Putin. And of course, that's when some deals were cooked, they say, particularly over the energy and today what we're seeing is effectively Azerbaijan helping Russia circumvent sanctions by selling more uh, gas to the Europeans and buying more from Russia. And everybody sort of pretends, you know, not to see and it's all OK. So there's so much happening. But just finally on, um, on the European role, we just saw the European Union announce that they were going to be sending 100 civilian uh, observers to monitor the ceasefire lines and hopefully avert future conflict. Given past experience of such missions, be they in Bosnia or elsewhere in Georgia, I mean, how, how hopeful can we be in fact that if Azerbaijan puts it in its head to, you know, 
you know, create facts on the ground again, that those observers will be able to deter them. Uh, the fact that the European Union is now sending its civilian monitors, and we don't know the final number yet, uh, it's, it's almost a miracle. I remember talking about uh, some kind of possible ideas uh, a year ago uh, before the, the war in Ukraine, and you should have seen all these <laughs> people kind of looking at me. They absolutely were not ready to do that. And uh, for clear reasons, uh, you know, we all understand that First of all, um, it's uh, Russia kind of, you know, it's uh, considers with region as part of kind of area of its interest. And it's uh, quite uh, problematic, you know, uh, to to do your proper work, uh, even with positive intentions when when Moscow is trying to undermine on all the fronts. And the second, it's also the position of the Armenian government um, for many months uh, after the 2020 war, uh, what Yerevan has been doing anytime they had the problems at the border with Azerbaijan, they would ask uh, Russians to deploy even more, either border guards or military. So they were trying to kind of mitigate uh, with war and uh, by having more Russians, not Europeans. So now it has changed. Uh, and, and with this, mainly because of the war, uh, Russia has less resource uh, here in the region. Armenia seems to be um, to be to show readiness, uh, you know, to engage with the European Union more. And it's uh, it's really positive that uh, those always member states they were ready to give a green light to the mission. Um, the deployment itself is not enough. <laughs> you need to have enough people. You need to have a, a mandate, and there it will be very very important to have Azerbaijan on board, uh, either with Azerbaijan given a permission to the mission to operate, maybe even occasionally on its territory along the border. And, you know, I would say that it is actually in the interest of Azerbaijan, because by doing that, they uh, effectively uh, minimize a chance uh, for with monitors to make a mistake. Um, they can go and they can speak to the Azerbaijani military and representatives about some incident or some situation taking place along the border. Well, if they don't uh, provide with success, and we know that Baku is quite, um, you know, they have a strong opinion that um, they don't want to have any kind of foreign presence on their territory, and that uh, feeling has reinforced because of the Russian peacekeepers in Nagorno-Karabakh. So um, even if uh, they don't provide an access, what we are saying in the report, and this is based on many interviews uh, with interlocutors from the European uh, Union, they really need to uh, give a green light to their military and security personnel deployed along the border to engage with the Armenian side. And the European Union's monitoring mission would facilitate a hotline and also regular meetings. When one would think that this is something, you know, like what you will read some books, you know, about peacekeeping, peacemaking. Um, I saw it happening in Georgia. Uh, for 15 years uh, since the kind of, you know, which is what the European Union's monitoring mission has been doing here. And it, it's so, it's such a good thing, <laughs> you know, with headline and the meetings, because it's uh, not only um, something that you will employ anytime you, for example, see like a 10 trucks, for example, moving along the military trenches on the other side. And right away, of course, you start thinking that they are preparing an attack. So that gives you a chance to... Um, 
to ask before starting shooting, right? But uh, in addition to that, it's also um, what you can uh, use in case, for example, uh, you see a, a, some people getting detained or there are some problems even with animals, you know, like cow, for example, walking around and you want to make sure that that cow returns because we are <laughs> the only yeah, income for the families. It's a real problem, you know, for and then which is really very essential for the people who live in the border area. Well, it's wonderful that you keep emphasizing the human factor in all of this, Olesia, that is... Just, which is very much about you know, the people, you know? Especially in the think tank world, as you know, you hear all these words flying about, like strategy, leverage, blah, 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 when, you know, this is all about human beings. But of course, as your report noted, the main, main conflict between these two countries is focused on Nagorno-Karabakh, and that's where this European mission has no um, mandate. And so the risk for conflict in any case exists. And as Azerbaijan sees things, Nagorno-Karabakh, and this is what the world agrees with, is part of Azerbaijan within its internationally recognized borders. Uh, and so the best Armenia can hope for is some kind of arrangement where the uh, Armenian population there enjoys some rights and freedoms. But of course, it's not easy to be very hopeful on that count, and especially given what's happening with the blockade. Um, so let's keep our fingers crossed and hope that things get better. And I thank you so very much for joining us here today, Alessia, and thank you for that amazing report, which all of you tuned into this show must absolutely read. We'll be providing a link. Uh, so thank you. Thank you, Alessia. Thanks so much for your kind words. Thank you. And this brings us to the end of this week's On the Middle East. Do tune in again next week for another interesting conversation. Thank you and goodbye.